We're looking at Zachariah's song, which has been properly titled in Latin, the Benedictus. And you'll find that in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. But for the sake of context, we're going to begin back in verse 57, and we'll read down to verse 80. Luke 1, 57 to 80. As Mary has brought news to her relative Elizabeth of what the angel Gabriel has revealed to her, we're going to look at Mary's song, the Magnificat next Lord's Day. But as she has brought that news into the home of her relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and has reported all those things that the angel has told her now, uh, Luke turns attention to what the Lord was doing in that home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he writes, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John you'll remember that he was deaf and mute because he had not believed the message that the Lord had sent him about the birth of his child through his aged and very long barren wife and now he writes what the Lord told him to name this child. His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, or the day spring from on high, shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the marked features of uh, common human experience is that all of us have built into us this eager longing for those things that we desire. 
Um, I remember as a boy, I couldn't wait to turn 16 so I could get a driver's license, much to the chagrin of my parents, I'm sure. And then we can't wait to be old enough to go to college. And then we can't wait to marry our spouse. And then we can't wait to have a child. And we can't wait to enter into the career that God has called us and to accomplish the desires of our hearts. And yet, one of those common experiences is once we... Uh, experience those anticipated things, once they become realized, we often find that they weren't everything that we thought they would be. And life is difficult and hard and uh, circumstances are challenging and things are never what we would have them be if it was up to us to script the story of our lives. And I think some of that is normal because God did not put us here to be satisfied in our experiences or in the realization of the desires that we have temporal things. Um, it's interesting that in this home, one of the great desires throughout the very lengthy marriage that Zachariah and Elizabeth would have had was the desire to have children, especially in Israel, especially for one of the Levitical priests. What an important thing to have a child, and not just a child, to have a son, and yet God had withheld that blessing from Zachariah and Elizabeth. We don't know how old she was, but by uh, the, the narrative of Scripture, she was, she was aged. And, and God is now going to do that for them. He's going to fulfill the desire of their heart to give them a child. And yet, what is unique about this account, different than all other accounts of the birth of a child, is that Zechariah is not focused first and foremost on the blessing of the son that God is going to give he and his wife. He is focused on what God is doing in redemptive history and bringing the Savior and what purpose that son is going to play in exalting the Savior. Um, in a very real sense, Zechariah, as he uh, takes up this song, as the Holy Spirit fills him and he prophesies this great nativity hymn, and, and it is in response to the birth of his son, John, who is going to be the forerunner of the Redeemer. In a sense, he is looking past his son to what God is doing in fulfilling his covenant promises, realizing everything, and the marvelous thing about this, everything that God had said he was going to do for so many thousands of years, Zechariah is seeing fulfilled before his eyes in real time. It's a marvelous song of the realization of God's anticipated covenant promises. And as we look at this this morning, and we look at that idea of realization in this nativity song, I want us to focus just on two things. First, the Spirit's revelation in the realization of God's promises, and then God's covenant faithfulness in the realization of those promises. The Spirit's revelation and God's covenant faithfulness. Well, notice there in verse 67, Luke uh, introduces this song by saying, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're reading this in your Bible reading and you haven't uh, read through the Old Testament at any point recently, you might forget that this is not an everyday occurrence. Um, the Spirit of God came at certain times to certain individuals in redemptive history. He came down on David when he was anointed. He came down on the prophets. He, he came down and filled Ezekiel when God gave Ezekiel that great prophetic message there on the bank of the river. 
But one of the things that ought to strike us as, as phenomenal about the Nativity song here is that it is introduced and authored by the Holy Spirit who had been silent for 400 years. 400 years since the close of Malachi's prophecy, the Spirit had not uttered one word of revelation. And then when we look at Luke's account, when we look in Luke chapter 1 and 2, when we look at what is happening here, we see the activity and the presence of the Spirit everywhere in all of the characters surrounding the nativity accounts. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards notes, here we have the return of the Spirit. By the way, when we think about Christmas, we think about the incarnation. How much do we think about the return of the Spirit? Edwards says, here we have the return of the Spirit who was given on occasion of Christ's birth. Listen to this. Though prophecy had ceased not long after Malachi, from the time just before this throughout, there were new revelations, and the Spirit was operating and returning again. Listen to this. First, the Spirit came upon Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Next, upon Mary. Third, upon Joseph. Then the Spirit was given to Elizabeth. Next, it was given to Mary. Here again to Zechariah. Then it was sent to the shepherds. Then he was given to Simeon, then to Anna, then to the wise men in the east. Everywhere the Holy Spirit is active. Why? Because Christ is the fullness of divine revelation. Everything that God had put in the pages of the Old Testament that the people of God were to be anticipating is now coming to fruition. And so it is right that the Holy Spirit is everywhere present and active in revealing the full revelation of Christ. This is amazing. Now, you see what this really means to some degree in the fact that when you compare Zachariah's song here or Mary's Magnificat just before this, they sound strikingly familiar to the language of so many of the Psalms. The difference is they are the Psalms pushed through the Lord Jesus and brought out to realized fulfillment in Christ. These are, these are essentially redemptive historical Psalms. They are the culmination of what God, by the Spirit, had breathed out through the psalmist for the Old Covenant people. Zechariah knew the Psalms well. That's why he can break out when his tongue is finally loosed and he can, he can utter this as the Spirit is working in him. But there is a redemptive historical fullness happening now. You'll note that language. Notice um, in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. He has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up a horn as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets. You see, there is, in Zechariah's mind, a redemptive historical fulfillment to everything that God had said in the Old Testament. And now the Spirit is giving the fuller revelation. Now here is what's amazing. What's amazing is how little Zechariah has to go on. We have so much more revelation. We have the full revelation of Christ in all of the epistles, in the pastoral letters, in the apocalypse, we have the, 
full revelation of the Lord Jesus. We get to see it all. Zechariah could only see dimly what the Old Testament revealed, but because the Spirit was indwelling him and enabling him to see beyond what he could see with human sense and reason, and his faith was helping him to see past that to all that God was already going to do. Now keep in mind, Jesus has not yet been born. He's going to be born in a short while. But what Zechariah does by the Spirit prophesying in him is that he holds out the absolute certainty that God was doing something new and bringing about the realization of what the Old Testament prophets had anticipated. Um, it's important for us to recognize that the Holy Spirit is the author of divine revelation. That's what makes this so marvelous. Um, no, no human could have invented uh, the, the details of the, the nativity record in the Gospels or the complexity of what Zechariah is saying as he understands that God's doing what God alone could do and the Spirit is the author of that revelation. Now, I want us to just consider very briefly um, Again, note that what Zechariah is seeing there in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, remember, Zechariah is saying this as a birth announcement about his son, John the Baptist. But again, he sees past John, and he realizes that what's happening in the womb of the virgin is that God has come and indwelt the Virgin Mary in her womb. He has entered into time and space. He has broken into time and space in the fullness of time. And he has visited and has redeemed his people. That was the great expectation. Isaiah had prophesied, the Lord will come. The Lord will come. The other prophet said, the Lord will come to his temple. The day is coming. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, Isaiah said, and, and come down. And, and Zechariah understands that God has come and he has visited his people. What a marvelous way to think of the incarnation. When we think about the human nature of the Redeemer being knit together in the womb of the Virgin Mary and the two natures, the divine nature of the eternal Son being knit together inseparably forever with that human nature in Mary's womb. When we think about that, the first thing we ought to think is God has visited his people. You know, in the Old Covenant, when Israel was sojourning, the Lord came down at certain times. He came down in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. He made his presence known. He came down on the tabernacle. In fact, God dwelt in the tabernacle. And what was the point of that? What was the point of God dwelling in a tent? Well, his people dwelt in tents. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God dwelt in a tent because his people dwelt in tents. In order for God to come to his people, he had to become like his people. And, and God now has visited his people by taking to himself flesh and blood in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he has done that, Zechariah says, not just to come and be with us, but to redeem us. Notice he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, again, Christ has not yet been born. Christ has not yet 
lived his perfect sinless life and carried out his messianic public ministry. He has not yet been nailed to the tree. He has not yet been put in the tomb. He has not yet raised from the dead. And yet Zechariah, by the Spirit prophesying in him because of what God has done in the womb of the virgin, can say God has visited, God has redeemed his people. Think of the certainty of faith that's going on in the heart and the soul of Zechariah. Um, you know, many of us, because when the circumstances of life get difficult, we wonder, is God really for me? Is God really with me? Um, what about his promises? How do I know they'll be true for me? Um, on judgment day, will I hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or will I hear, depart from me? I never knew you. That's the end of all men, one of those two. And, and we start to ask those questions, and our circumstances shake us, and our trials shake us. And, and instead of leaning in on the certainty of what the Spirit has revealed here, we tend to grumble under it and to break under it and to lose sight of the glory of what God is doing in fulfilling all that God has promised that he would do. Listen to this. John Calvin, reflecting on this, said, when it comes to believing God, it is extraordinary how fussy we are. I don't know if that's a good translation or not of Calvin, but I like it. When it comes to believing God, it's extraordinary how fussy we are, especially when we're under some kind of tension or pressure. For a minute or two, we confidently proclaim that God is faithful, but when trouble comes, when the devil tempts us to despair, when we're puzzled and perplexed, where's the teaching we once ass asserted to? Here, Zechariah is teaching us by the Spirit. We can be absolutely confident. Even before Jesus fulfills everything, God is going to do what God had promised to do, and God was bringing it to realization. That's an awesome anchor for our souls. We're going to see that in just a minute. It's an awesome anchor for your soul. Now, notice that Zechariah in this song is reflecting on what God is doing. Notice verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, there are many scholars who debate this. There are many who think that Zechariah has in mind that God is going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Romans or other oppressing nations. And certainly there is, there is a deliverance motif running through this. And Israel is at that period very oppressed, just like they were under bondage in Egypt. They are still under the rule of Gentile nations who hate them and despise them. But, but notice that, that Zechariah is speaking in figurative terms drawn from the Old Testament, speaking about the spiritual salvation that God had promised. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. We saw last Lord's Day that promise, Isaiah said that God would raise up the root and the branch of Jesse, the house of David. He'd fulfill that promise. And yet, what's marvelous about Zechariah's song and statement is that Zechariah was not himself of the house of David. He wasn't of the tribe of Judah. He was a Levite. He was a priest. He had no claim to the throne. His son would not sit on the throne. In fact, we know from Scripture that his son would live in the wilderness and wear shabby clothing and eat locusts and wild honey and would be an ascetic and would be 
um, would be socially cut off. And yet, Zechariah is not looking at what God's going to do in his own child. He's looking at what God's going to do through the son of David that God had promised. Notice he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Um, You know, our faith is bolstered when we see in the pages of the Old Testament God constantly revealing through the prophets what he was going to do when he would send the long-promised son of David. Zechariah realizes it's all happening. God is fulfilling this. God is making good on his promise. Now, Zechariah can only do this by the Holy Spirit. And yet, the Spirit moves from giving this fuller revelation about what God is now accomplishing and what he is fulfilling to now explaining how it is that God's doing this. And so secondly, I want us to consider God's covenant faithfulness in the realization of the promises. That is everything. That's everything. Listen, when the bottom falls out of our lives, when everything goes wrong, there is one thing that we can be sure of. God will always keep his promises. God will always make good on what he has said. I was thinking about this this week. I think, in part, we have such a hard time believing that because we don't make good on our promises so often. Often, even inadvertently, we tell someone we'll do something. We say to someone, I'll pray for you, and then we forget to pray for them. We didn't make good on what we said. We do that constantly. It it plagues our consciences that we don't fulfill what we say we'll do. Yet God is not like us. God is not like us. The prophets say that not one word of all that he says will ever fall to the ground, will ever fail to come to pass. And that is an anchor for our souls. Notice this, that Zechariah is rooting all of this. He's rooting all of this in God's covenant promises. Notice verse 72. Verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. That's everything. That's everything. You know, we in Reformed churches like to talk about the importance of covenant theology and how that unifies the Bible and how it helps us understand everything that the Spirit reveals in Scripture. But sometimes we fail to understand really the, the, the gravity of what it means for our souls on a day-to-day basis. The gravity, the the weight of what it means that God has made covenant promises and that God will always keep those promises. Always keep them. Always fulfills them. None of Israel's, think about this, none of Israel's apostasy, and they they were wicked, just like the nations, every generation, every generation. None of their unfaithfulness negated God's faithfulness to his promise. God gave a promise to Abraham. And he said in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to bless the nations in you. And Abraham understood that that promise was dependent on God giving him a son, his own flesh and blood child. But Abraham was old and didn't have a child. And so Abraham wrestled with that. And so in Genesis 15, as God is reiterating that promise, Abram, 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your great reward. And Abram looks around and he sees no child. And, and Abram says, Lord, how are you going to bless me? How are you going to realize what you've promised me when I have no child? All I have is Eliezer, the servant. And the Lord says, Sarah's going to conceive. And, and you know the account. You know the narrative. God will come. And he will miraculously enable Sarah to conceive and he'll bring the son of promise and he will be the progenitor of the redeemer, the true son of promise, the true son of Abraham, Jesus. Um, And yet, Abraham is having to learn to trust what he doesn't see fully and take God fully at his word. Now, where is that seen so marvelously? It's seen in the account where God commands Abram, Abraham at this point to take Isaac and to go up on Mount Moriah and to lay him on the altar and to offer him as a sacrifice. And that doesn't make sense. If God has said, I'm going to bless you and all the nations are going to be blessed in your seed. It doesn't make sense how that's going to happen if Abraham now has to offer Isaac up as an offering. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what Abraham did that was so marvelous. It says Abraham took the covenant promises. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nations in you. I'm going to make you great. And your seed is going to bless to the ends of the earth. Now kill him. And what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 is that Abraham went forth by faith to offer up Isaac, concluding, reasoning, that God was able to raise him from the dead. What's the point of that? Abraham knew the certainty of God's promise. And though he couldn't understand how it was going to come to realization and fruition, he trusted that the Lord was going to do what he said, even if it meant he had to kill Isaac and God would raise him back up and fulfill those promises. That's amazing. And that's what it looks like for us to have our souls anchored in the covenant promises that God has fulfilled in Christ. The writer of Hebrews gives us this marvelous, this marvelous uh, description of the certainty of God's covenant promises in Hebrews chapter 6. And I'll just read for us here, uh, speaking about God's dealing with Abraham. He says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he, he had no one greater by whom he could swore, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so Abraham, patiently waiting, obtained the promise. Now listen to this. The writer of Hebrews says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, what is the writer saying? He's saying there are two things that anchor our souls in the covenant promises of God. Number one, God never changes. He never changes. Um, years ago, many decades ago, I was doing evangelism in New Jersey, and we had a little track, and I always hated giving out tracks, but I like this one. It said, four things God can't do. 
and I'd give it out on the boardwalk. And I remember one time a kid said to his friend, see, I told you you couldn't do everything. And it's like, maybe read it. <laughs> and, and one of those four things was God can't change. It's impossible. He's immutable. If he could change, he could become something less than God. He is that being of which there is none greater. He can't change. He's perfect. He is self-sufficient. And, and that means when God says, I am going to do this, he is going to do it. Against all odds, against all human wisdom and understanding. And the second thing is that God gave an oath, a pledge. He did it for Abraham when he cut the animals and he passed through in the flaming pot and torch. And he said, essentially, I'm going to represent both parties. And if this covenant is broken, if my people rebel, if they sin against me, what happens to these animals is going to happen to me. And then it does. And then it happens to him. It happens to him on the cross. The oath that God made to Abraham is fulfilled when Jesus is crucified. He's cut apart in judgment. God has kept his word. God has not changed. God has taken to himself flesh and blood. God has fulfilled the promises to Abraham, and God has taken the judgment that his people deserve. That's how God has fulfilled the promises to Abraham. And this is why when the Apostle Paul steps back in 2 Corinthians and he looks at all the promises that God gave in the Old Testament, all the covenant promises, Paul can understand with an eye to the realization, he says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ and amen to the glory of God. That means when I think about that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How do I know that's going to work for me? Because Christ would go to the cross and be forsaken in my place for my sin. He'd be cut off from the land of the living so that that word, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is absolutely guaranteed to us in Christ. If you're trusting in him, it's guaranteed. Um, there's really nowhere we ought to go uh, to garner strength in our life of faith than to that. Notice, to show the mercy promise to our fathers. What Zechariah is seeing here is that the epicenter of God's covenant promises is that God would not give us what we deserve. He would be merciful to us. Notice that he, he sees uh, in more specificity what this means. Notice verse 77. What does the covenant promise of God mean in realization? Now God is giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What does Zechariah understand he needs more than anything? To have his sins forgiven. What was the promise of blessing to Abraham? Well, in large part, it was redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God was providing the sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. What do you need this morning more than anything in your life to have your sins forgiven? What do I need more than anything in my life to have my sins forgiven? And how can we know that our sins are forgiven? Because God has kept his covenant promise to Abraham. God has fulfilled it in the Lord Jesus on the cross. And everything is done. The Lord Jesus cried out. Here is the cry of realization this morning. He was born to cry, it is finished. It is finished. There's nothing you can add to it. 
There's nothing left to wait for. Notice that Zechariah also understands that God has positioned his son to be part of this. Notice verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Um, it's interesting in the Old Testament, um, it's not just Christ who is prophesied of, John the Baptist was. Both Malachi and Isaiah had prophesied of the forerunner of the Redeemer who would come and make straight the way of the Lord, who would make his path straight. And when John entered in on his ministry, he had one job and one only, and he stood and he saw Jesus and he pushed the people away from himself and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he lived to be the greatest of Old Testament prophets because in the flesh he would point to Christ. They pointed from a distance. He would point in the flesh. And his whole existence was to magnify the one that God was bringing into the world to fulfill the covenant promises given to his people for so many thousands of years. Notice verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise or the day spring from on high shall visit us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace now listen you hear me preach about christ every sunday in this church i want to emphasize this morning it's not enough to go away and say that was nice i learned something maybe i didn't learn anything but the right response is to say i need my soul strengthened in faith in christ and I know where I get that strengthening. It's in the fact that God doesn't change, that he has made exceedingly great and precious promises. He has revealed them in covenant. He has promised his tender mercies to me, and he has promised to forgive my sins. Now, what does that do when I get it? What does that do for me? It enables me, A, to live by faith in those promises, when things around me aren't going the way I want them to go, when the circumstances aren't what I wish they were, it enables me to press on and say, I'm going to trust him. He's always been faithful. He will continue to be faithful even when I don't see in the circumstances of my life how he's going to do that. Number two, it encourages us to confess our sins to him. Listen, if we're not in the practice, of going to the Lord, confessing our sins, crying out for forgiveness, then we really don't believe this. We can say, that was great, I get it. There's a coherence, I see the unity of scripture, but if my response is not, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for the ways that I've broken your covenant. Forgive me for the ways that I've rebelled against you, then we're not believing this. Because notice, Zechariah says that the epicenter of the realization of these promises is that God is going to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's already done that. He's already atoned for our sins. He's already provided the legal grounds of forgiveness for everything that we've ever done, for everything we ever will do. And now it's ours to believe and to cast ourselves in childlike faith on the Lord Jesus. And to understand that all the promises of God are yes 
and amen in him. Now, I'm going to say this morning that this ought to make our hearts sing when we sing hymns like, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That's what we're singing. Great is Thy Faithfulness. Um, do you believe that? Do you believe the Lord is absolutely faithful to his promises? Do you believe that when things are not going well around you in your life? Do you believe that when you're just struggling? You know, we are called to believe that. I want to quote to you uh, the rest of what Calvin said as we close this morning. Listen to this. He's reflecting on what this ought to do for us. Calvin says, knowing how weak we are, we should pray that God will strengthen us and always give us grace to persevere, enabling us to overcome every trial, every worldly obstacle, every hindrance the devil puts in our way. When we place our trust in him and in the testimony he's given us of his goodwill, faith will triumph over every attack of the devil and the world and our flesh may make upon us. That's the cash value of the Benedictus. That's, it's a guarantee. You can go to God and you can say, Lord, you have promised. You have fulfilled your promises. Now do in my life what you have promised to do. Would you show the faithfulness you have already shown to me in this circumstance or in this temptation or in this trial or when I'm buckling under this sin? And you can hold God, if I can say this reverently this morning, you can hold God to his word. You know, there's almost nothing that has grieved me in life more than hearing my children say, but you promised. I know. You all have done that. Come on. Um, because I know that I've let them down in some way. Listen, God will never let us down because he has promised. And in fact, when we go to him and say, Lord, will you not make good on your promise to me because you fulfilled it in Christ, it, it brings him glory. He loves that. Because he loves to display his immutability. He loves to confirm for us the certainty of his promises. He loves to show us that he has made good on everything that he has promised. And this is it. He will make good. There's only one thing we're waiting for. Christ is going to come again. He is going to make good by sending the Lord Jesus again. It is certain. We can say... As certainly as Zechariah said, the Lord has visited and has redeemed his people before Christ ever goes to the cross, we can say he is coming again with glory and power and majesty. And so we can say, Lord, will you not fulfill your promise by sending the Lord Jesus again to bring about the full realization of everything you've already realized in the fullness of time? I hope that you'll be encouraged to be strengthened in the knowledge that God has made good on his promises, that he has remembered his holy covenant, that he has delivered us from our enemies, that he has forgiven our sins, that his tender mercies have appeared to us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that we can sing the same song that Zacharias sang because we see in the pages of scripture that you have done so marvelous 
marvelously in fulfilling your covenant promises through Christ. We thank you that you've given us the full revelation by your spirit. We thank you that you've revealed the eternal mysteries of the Lord Jesus to us in all of their fullness in the pages of the New Testament. We pray, our God, that you would strengthen us in faith. We are weak. We are often foolish. We are often unbelieving. We are oftentimes not trusting you, Lord, for what you have already guaranteed to us in the gospel. And so would you increase our faith? Would you give us the certainty of your absolute faithfulness in fulfilling your covenant promises to Abraham? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.